I ask you to pick a song that conveys a philosophy that informs and undergirds your writing. Emily Sunday, read all about it. You've got the words to change a nation, but you're biting your tongue. You've spent a lifetime stuck in silence, afraid you'll say something wrong. The, the philosophy that undergirds my writing is say what your mother couldn't say. Hello friends and welcome to season three of Books and Rhymes, the podcast that celebrates the joy of reading by flipping the script with a musical twist on your favourite books. I invite guests to pair books with songs or albums that spark the same emotional connection. I'm your host Sarah, a West African in the diaspora with a deep abiding love for the written word. Join me as I take you on a musical journey through the works of new and classic authors. Before I introduce the guests for today's episode, I would like to tell you about out the forthcoming Lit Avengers Salon, a digital book club where we meet to discuss two pre-selected books that talk to each other. The books for January are Things Fall Apart by Chinua Achebe and Chintu by Jennifer Nansumbuga Makumbi. February's books are House of Stone by Noviyoro Sashuma and These Bones Will Rise Again by Panache Chigumatsi. The book pairings for March are Homegoing by Yajasi and The Hundred Walls of Salaga by Aisha Haruna Atta. The book pairings for April are The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett and Passing by Nella Larson. If you would like to join us for the Lit Avengers Salon, send an email to booksandrhymes at gmail.com. Today's guest is the amazing, incomparable and indomitable Jennifer Nansunwuga Makumbi, author of two novels, one collection of short story and winner of numerous prestigious literary prizes, including the 2013 Kwani Manuscript Project, 2014 Commonwealth Prize and 2018 Wyndham Campbell Fellowship Grant. In today's episode, we use the music of Miriam Makiba, Queen, Emily Sande, Eddie Kenzo and more to discuss Makumbi's journey to getting her debut novel Chintu, spelled K-I-N-T-U, published, the real value of winning the Kwani Manuscript Project, and how it defined her writing careers, why writers must invest in good editors and we also discuss our response to that introductory essay to the US edition of Chintu. Listen to Jennifer Nansunwuga Makumbi's playlist via the link in the episode description. Subscribe, rate and review Books and Rhymes the podcast on Apple Podcasts and all podcast listening platforms. It really sincerely goes a long way. Enjoy the episode. Yas! Hello and welcome to your episode of Books and Rhymes, the podcast. Hello. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for having me. In season two of the podcast, there is something that I started doing, which I think is very important, which is to ask guests to pronounce their names for archiving purposes and so that we know how to pronounce our author's names correctly and properly. How do you pronounce your name? (laughs) Okay. My name is Jennifer. Nansu Vuga Makombi. <laughs> For the first time, I get to say my name the way my grandfather said it. Yes, thank you for giving me that chance. It is Nansu Vuga. <laughs> oh my goodness. My mouth is like, what? So I've been mispronouncing your middle name all these years. I'm not surprised because even in Uganda, we mispronounce it because we are getting impatient with names. (laughs) 
So I remember my my grandfather. So the the male part of it is nsubuga, and then the female you add na and you become nansubuga. But we just go nansubuga, you know, and it changes entirely. But now that you've asked me to do that, I, it just takes me back because sometimes I mispronounce it too. It's just the intonation, really. Oh my goodness. Thank you. It's like a spark just went off in my brain, like, oh, thank you. <laughs> so welcome to your episode of Books Around the Podcast, where I will basically spend some time, if not all of the time, fangirling. Yes. But also <laughs> but also going through your process, going through your reasons for writing, how mm-hmm. you write, why mm-hmm. you write, who you write for your intention behind the work. And also, I assume finishing a book and releasing a book to the world is like birthing a baby and the baby grows up. The baby graduates university and then it's like, oh my goodness, they've left the house. I have no control anymore. I know, I know. You've got to cut the umbilical cord. Yes. Part of our conversation would be to talk about how does your book contribute to the world, not just within those writings by continental and diaspora Africans, but also within global literature, culture shifts and things like that. So welcome to your episode of Books and Rhymes, the podcast. It is my pleasure to have you. Thank you for giving me an episode, Sarah. I own it. <laughs> it's mine. <laughs> I do a lot of research in music. So I, 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 there are always soundtracks in my in my writing. But to be given a chance <laughs> to go back and relieve it, oh, that was fantastic. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. Okay, I'm going to just get used to it. I fangirl because I like good literature and good literature hits the right spot for me. So <laughs> any any chance to express my love and appreciation to an author whose work has deeply touched move and intellectually excited me uh yeah I'm going to just go ah so yeah thank you give me one (laughs) (laughs) so thank you thank you very much it's wonderful to be appreciated you are a lot of readers autobuy so autobuy is an author whose book they would buy automatically and I'm not flattering you oh wow now that's a new word. Yeah, Oh my you god! Know? Thank you. The thing that I really like about your readers and their engagement with your work is that women like myself, continental and diaspora African women like myself, were like Jennifer. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! And we similar. Uh, I am diaspora. I'm continental. I'm, you know. I interviewed Mutoni Muriri, a Kenyan literary activist, and she's one of the people behind the African Review. So when I interviewed her, I asked her, I said, something along the line of, you had one copy of the book in the world and your house was on fire and the book was lost. Which book would that be and how would you feel? Guess which book she picked? Chintu. <laughs> oh, I love her. <laughs> Already. I love you, Mutoni. Wherever you are, I love you already. <laughs> oh, my days. Uh, you have no idea how it feels to be appreciated in Africa like that. You know, 
it's so so rewarding you know i sit here in this corner on my own in the dark from morning to evening and i don't know at the end of the book of, of the writing experience how people are going to receive my book and then of course i'm not on social media so i don't know what is going on but things start to trickle in like that and i'm like oh yeah oh yeah it was so worth it it was so worth it just to hear that thank you for your fantastic song selection song curation playlist i think so because i kept on thinking oh my god um you know because you sent me the podcast and you told me to listen to it and so i was listening to chica you know chica is my my brother <laughs> you know that uh, that brother and he's he was really really good and you know uh the lives of great men yes is one of the my best reads and he was there and then he plays sweet mother and i'm like <laughs> what have you done to me <laughs> and and then i thought i should have listened to this because i would have chosen another and the other song i could have chosen was John Lennon's mother. So I was like, no, 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 Chica, we're just going to have to share that song. <laughs> it's nine minutes. We, <laughs> there's enough to go around. Oh my goodness. Sweet mother, I never forget you. For this over way you suffer for me. Sweet mother, I never forget you. For this over way you suffer. So when you said it's nine minutes, I was like, I know that song. I grew up with that song. No party was complete without that song being played. Oh my days. It that song takes me back to my parents' house. You know, yeah. I remember my dad's funny dancing strokes. Oh. <laughs> oh, we love it. We love it. So as with every episode of the podcast, I ask guests to curate a playlist to the episode now because your recently published novel is titled the first woman <laughs> it's so gorgeous so beautiful like i told you i'm gonna be fangirling oh it's fantastic and you know what those are all ugandan colors that's the ugandan flag i i my publisher is just being so nice to me i get suspicious <laughs> the cover came in i was given three covers you know they gave me the first one i was eh, eh. and then the second one i was yeah good and the third one I was like yes that's it and with chintu as well because with chintu they came up with a national emblem yeah that is the buganda it's exciting. and i'm like hmm this publisher is being a little too nice to me <laughs> you know yeah. they, they time to do their research and that was fantastic but you are serious you have the the two covers i love most i'm a proud cover ho everyone knows that and it's ho h-e-a-u-x by the way because we're bougie up in up in here i think it's important to establish that the first time i met you and encountered your work was at africa rights festival i believe in 2016 or 2015 when the kwani edition of chintu was published and you were discussing it at africa rights festival all right all right we go way back 
Wow, that takes me back. <laughs> I told you. I told you. Oh, wow. Listen, I've been reading you for a while. We've been, we've been walking together for a long time. <laughs> Five years, that's a very... That would be marriage at two two children as well. Okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and at that time, I was undertaking a research into historical memory. And so hearing you talk about Chintu, I was like, stop it, stop it, stop it. My mind is about to explode. Historical memory, bringing the past to the present, memorializing the past through a generational thread. What? What? So yeah. <laughs> I've had a few authors appear on the podcast and when I ask them to curate a playlist, they pair songs to specific chapters yes. of the book. Yes. But you did something totally different. You paired songs to characters in the book. <laughs> oh my, oh my, you gave me a chance to dedicate songs to my characters. I have been living with these people for the last 20 years almost. God, I know them. And I was I was going to send them some songs and I knew they would understand those songs. Talk us through your song selections. Um, so the first song is obviously Tuchiravo. And I thought only Alicia Keys could talk to Chiravo, really. Uh, try sleeping with the broken heart. You know, that song, I, I played it over and over as Chirabo, you know, went to bed that night after finding out about Jiwa being pregnant. You know, that night, she, she it's like she took um, uh, a, a knife and started scraping flesh of her body, remembering how he touched her and his voice and his smells, you know, because he used to wear brute, you know, that, that was the male fragrance of that. <laughs> <laughs> Do not laugh. I know it's like brute and old spice. Oh my no, goodness! Old spice is dad. That that is um, the dad's generation. I thought that Chirabo would appreciate um, Alicia Keys. Try sleeping with a broken heart. And then you have my favorite song by a Ugandan yeah. artist, De Kansule. <laughs> yes. So um, this one is Tuntate. Now Tuntate is one of those peripheral characters that I didn't pay much attention to until the book was finished. And then I read it through again and he came up and I, my heart just broke for him. You know, because Ntate was so annoying when they were children. Ntate drove Chirabo mad, you know, but Chirabo didn't realize at the time that perhaps Ntate was in love with her. She, she is absolutely unaware. She only has eyes for seal. But, uh, you know, uh, Ntate, right from the moment when they were caught up the tree and grandmother said, oh, Chirabo, you climbing a tree, those um, 
the fruits are going to go sour and data comes down and he's like, poo, poo, you know. So Jehovah hates him. And then when they become teenagers, and Tata starts to hate Theo and says the most, un, you know, horrible things about Theo. So Chirabo is not capable of loving Tata. But when, when she's leaving to go to the city, she hugged him. But she hugged him because she wanted to hug both boys and girls. So dad does not realize that later when she goes to hug. So she was using Tate and all the other boys so she could hug. So when she returns for the funeral and he's hanging around her and he, he, he has lost his tongue and she, she herself looks at him and says, oh, wow, people change because he's, 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 he's doing his A-levels too, but he is so, so in love with her. He can't even talk to her properly. And what, guess what Auntie Abby says? What was that fly doing? <laughs> so that's what broke my heart. And I thought I should dedicate this song to him, The City Alors. Because he's a hustler. And that song is about hustling, you know. Th those people who are... You know, I, 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 I will go out and get it. I don't care how much I'm kicked back, how much I lose. I'm not afraid of losing. I'm just going to go. So that's fantastic. <laughs> Um, so the next person is, um, uh, this one I dedicate to Sota, Devil Woman, it's by Martin Robbins. Mary is waiting and weeping down in our shack for the sea. Even after I've heard her, Mary's still in love with me. Devil woman, it's over, trapped no more by your charm. Cause I don't want to stay, I want to get away, woman, let go of my arm, oh, devil woman. Devil Again, it's a song I I looked at when I was doing research, and I thought Nsuta would love it because um, you, you, you see what he does with the devil woman. And then Sub City by Tracy Chapman, that one is dedicated to Jiwa. I love that song. Um, then Diamond on the Soul of Our Shoes by Simon and Gumfco to Tom. Uh, and then Steer It Up by Bob Marley to Seal. And you know, this is uh, the song that you ever think <laughs> it's like foreplay and Seal. <laughs> uh, and then uh, Pata Pata by Miriam Makeba to Grandfather Miriam. <laughs> I think he had a record like that um uh, in his on his gramophone. And then Brown-Eyed Girl by Steel Pulse. 
That is the reggae version. That is to Atim, Chirabo's best friend. That's a song you love to dance to. And then finally, Imagine by John Lennon to Bate. Bate is also like Ntate. He's a peripheral character. But um, this is a, a, a song that he, only he would understand why I dedicated it to him. And I will not and explain it. I don't like you. I don't like that because you're, no, no. <laughs> That's such a flippant statement to me. I don't like you. Why don't I explain it to me? No, no, this is between me and Bate. Uh, we understand each other. Even the way you wrote it, you gave the list of all the songs and the characters yeah. whom they're dedicated to. And you wrote Imagine by John Lennon, dedicated to Betty. And you put in bracket, he yeah. would understand. And you're reiterating the exact same sentiments. Like it's a, an intimate conversation between the both of you. An intimate I, I experience. Know, know. Indeed, Bate is understated. And he's understated for a reason. But Te is silent, he's quiet, and he drowns himself in the bottle. And there he has his reasons. And because he does not um, talk about his reasons, I am not going to talk about them either. But the thing about Bate is that he doesn't feature a lot in the novel, but when he does, he's yes. unforgettable. So there's a pivotal scene where Bate communicate something to yeah. Namdi. The reader is not privy to what was said, mm. but that communication elicited an action from Namdi that we, the reader, are perplexed about, but it drives yes. the narrative forward. In that sort of quick, sharp conversation, he changes oh, oh the yeah. dynamics. He does. He does. He does. But later, he, get, he hints a little bit about it. And the fact that he just goes back and he puts away all his pain and he starts to produce food. And he knew, he knew Nambi. And he knew why Tom loved her. We're going to come back to the secrets <laughs> in your work because secrets oh, play yes. a huge role. Oh yeah, I know. In your but work. That's what makes life interesting, secrets. I will never forget this. One of my favorite readers, also booktubers, Marina, she she reviews books on booktube under the channel Young, Gifted and Black. There is something, and she reviews mostly yeah, books yeah. by African authors and she's multilingual. So I'm like, oh my gosh, you can read French. Oh you can read Lingala. God. You can read English. Okay. That's jealous. a connection between Anglo and Anglo and Franco-Africa. That is a fantastic bridge. I'm jealous, but I'm going to park my jealousy aside right? There is something she said. She was like, oh, reading books is like indulging in gossip. I know. I know. I know. You just go to your room or sit away from people and, and you're like, because you read something and you're like, no, you didn't do that. How could you? Exactly. And when it's a first person narrator, they're telling yeah. you that they're gossiping to you. If it's an almighty narrator, it's like, come or yeah, sit down. Let me give you correct gist that yeah, you have yeah, not heard absolutely. before. But also sometimes they lie to you and you're like, mm -hmm, you think I'm stupid. <laughs> so speaking of secrets, <laughs> weaving secrets, secrets and having unspoken relationship 
between characters as a writer, I ask you to pick a song that conveys a philosophy that informs and undergirds your writing. And you oh, selected- I selected Emily Sunday. Emily Sunday. I mean, that song, read all about it, yeah? That song is an essay, honestly. Um, it, of course, it's also poetry. She's a fantastic poet, you know, and she's a fantastic singer. But um, she she articulates the moment, the African moment now, that idea that we are going to tell our stories and we are going to tell them the way we want and in in our versions, in all sorts of versions, because there are more than 2,000 versions of our stories from Africa. Uh, and and, and in the way she reminds to be bold. If um, I don't have my book here, but I have a notebook where I write before I, I type on the computer. And on top of it, I wrote, be bold. Say the unsayable. If you can't, just lay down and die. And that's what Emily Sunday is saying in that song. You know, um, she just reminds us to, why are you censoring yourself? And, and, and we do this all the time. You've got the words to change a nation, but you're biting your tongue. You've spent a lifetime stuck in silence, afraid you'll say something wrong. If no one ever hears it, how we gonna learn your song? So come on, come on, come on, come on. You've got a heart as loud as lying, so why let your voice be changed? Maybe we're a little and, and, and And when you think about history, uh, especially historical fiction, that goes back before coloniality. That is what she's asking us to do. It doesn't matter what you're writing. Go back to read all about it. Listen to it. That girl is talking to you. It's a song that has featured numerous times has on it? the podcast with I, I authors selection. It. I suspected it. I selected it. As I one suspected of songs. that it would feature because um because it's so it, it so works with fiction it so works with writing it with with poetry and and i knew it has featured along uh, a lot of times because i can't be the only one who has noticed but i thought you know what <laughs> i'm going to use it and i thank emily sunday for it i can't get the the epitaph that you said out of my head, which is be bold, say the unsayable. If you can't say it, lay down and die. That's a powerful statement. Why that particular statement and how does it fuel you with your writing? How does it speak to the philosophy and what is the philosophy that undergirds your writing? So the, the, the philosophy that undergirds my writing is that um, say what your mother couldn't say. Say what your grandmother hid under her tongue or that she bit back. Okay, and I hope my children will say what I've been unable to say, but be bold be bold uh, because if if you hold back 
then what have you added on to what your mother said? Because of course they didn't say everything, but they said something, you know. So you need to take it forward and say what they couldn't say. Okay. And so in 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 my books, I tend, especially the newest one, the first woman, I just go out and let rape, you know, because I think I won't have another child. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's the thing about writing books. Because I write on my own, in, my, in isolation, there's no immediate reaction. Remember, as a woman, there are certain things you may not be able to articulate in society they may, because you're a woman. And sometimes even age stops you, you know, because, oh, she's a woman. She's a grown woman. She's a married woman. She's a mother. How could she say that? Do you know what I mean? But if you are alone with your pen and a piece of paper, then you can articulate because the reaction to your words is going to be delayed. After you've written it down and sent it out, you can go and hide in your bedroom and let the world out there scream, how dare, how dare, can you believe what she said? But it's already said. And because it's written down, it cannot be erased the way words, spoken words can be forgotten, mis, misrepresented, changed. You know, no, but she didn't mean that. She was actually saying that because, you know, people tend to correct us. But you've written it down, it's been published, and it's out there on its own. You can go and hide in your bedroom. Be bold. It's such a valid statement, being bold, and also finding strength in isolation. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh yeah, for for women, and uh, there was someone who talked about it. One of our literary mothers, I don't remember who. Maybe it was Yvonne Vera, who I wouldn't call a literary mother, but a contemporary, though she's no longer with us. She, she would say, look, it, it, if no one is there to stop you, you know how when you're a child and you start stop talking and you're being censored by your parents or the grown-up, they, they slap you, you know, silently, you know, there's no one to do that. I want to talk about the courage to create yes. privately and the strength to deal with yes. people's response yes. to your work. The question I'm asking is not, I'm like, you're going to ask a salacious question. It's not a salacious question. Like you said, you are speaking words that were hidden behind the tongue. 
So words that are heavy for the mouth to speak. You know how our culture there is, it's very, well, for my my culture especially, it's a culture that is built on respectability. Oh, oh yeah. Oh. Respectability built over time. And there are certain very clear delineated strictures in place on what you can do, what you can't do, what can be said, what can't be said, which you explore explicitly and implicitly in First Woman, in Chintu, and also in your collection of short story, Manchester Happened. But speaking, the unspeakable is not without consequence or it's not without adverse reaction. Have you had adverse reaction to your work or have you had a surprising response to your work that you were not expecting or something that you think, ha, or, you know, your work has been misinterpreted by other people? And if you have, what strategies did you adopt to deal with it? Um, One, one of the strategies I dealt, uh, I I chose was to hide away from uh, social media. (laughs) I I'm so protected. I have no idea what is going on there. But uh, one of uh, the reaction that surprised me was with Chintu. I had no idea that um, all the men die and that all, you know. And then uh, in the end, I put a gun in the hands of a woman. And, And that was in a review. She kills all the men. And I thought, did I? You know, I didn't realize. But uh, the, you know, okay, the one that was left was um, it, it was mentally unwell. But uh, for me, that was not a feminist at all act, because um, uh, the women who were left alive were bringing up the the little boys to take over the clan. So for me, I would rather not kill the men and just let the women take over the the clan, you know, because killing them is such an easy way (laughs) out, you know, kill the men and then women take over. No, 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 no. They take over and the men are still there, (laughs) you know. So it it was, um, that surprised me, but um, it wasn't something that bothered me. In a way, because I spent some time with the books, I tend to prepare myself for all sorts of reactions, but still some of them take you by surprise. Um, so with um, with uh, the new book, it came out and somebody immediately in Uganda said, oh, she's con- being condescending to Ugandans. And I went immediately to um, that, uh, article I had um, that was published and looked again to see, because, you know, God, God, I, I I write to Ugandans. I would never, ever, ever do that. And, and read through to see where I could have, you know, m- misread, misunderstood, or could be misconstrued. And I couldn't find it. So I relaxed and I thought, okay, I'm going to let that go. But um, as an author, um, you've decided uh, you're not going to speak in public, you're going to speak through the books. Um, and, and if the words go out there, I would rather they defend themselves rather than me defending them. In fact, I write books that I would prefer they travel on their own without me coming along and helping them. Although when 
because you know the first woman was my first book uh, and I'm going to take on your image your metaphor of books as children uh, Chint was the son who was a second born who was like I'm going out if you're still being shy too bad I'm going and he goes out you know and so when I'm sending out uh the first woman I'm like Chintu please hold your sister's hand please hold, hold your sister's hand but you know what she's like excuse me I can walk on my own <laughs> you know so um and I, I I'm quite happy about that because I thought she would have to take a ride that, that this book will take a ride on Chintu's back. Mm. I, I'm, I'm very happy that it's making its own way. We're going to come to the responses and treatment of your work later on. Okay. More specifically, we're going to talk about the American markets. Oh, uh, yes. You've mentioned your writing preparation. And then you talked about how when you are writing, you prepare for all sorts of reactions. So not only are you preparing your stories, your, not only are you world building yes. and image crafting, you're also extracting yourself from this, let's say, for example, the mm-hmm. first woman universe, yeah. the Chintu universe. In a way, there is a duality going on in your mind. The universe that you're crafting for the reader to eventually indulge and immerse themselves in, but also this imagination of potential adverse reaction. Yes to this world that you're building yes. for your reader. And I, I, I haven't heard that before. I haven't actually heard a writer talk about that before, about sort of carrying two audiences oh, yeah. in your mind. Oh, yeah. And so I asked you to pick a book that influenced your craft as a writer, paired with a song that expresses the import of that particular book to you. Okay. It seems like a quick jump, like, oh, you might, you have two worlds with writers. Da, 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 da. But I, I just want to know, you know, like, how does one manage that? You know, that sort of multiplicity and, and still being able to function as a real human being <laughs> with everyday activities. Whilst you're like, oh, this world, you're immersed in this world. And sometimes are you not seduced to just remain in this universe that you're building? How do you extract yourself from it? It's a lot of questions, but we're going to go to that later. So I'm going to repeat the question I asked. Um, I asked you for a book that influenced your craft as a writer, paired with a song that expresses the import of that particular book to you. And you picked um, the book that influenced my craft. And it influenced me unconsciously because it's only recently that I've realized that Sam Bene Usman's uh, God's Bits of Wood. Uh, <laughs> isn't it wonderful? Oh my God. Uh, that book, uh, uh, and you know what? Uh, the different sections. I thought I was original. Uh, Uncle Sam Bene <laughs> did it a long time ago. You know, and uh, when I realized, I thought, oh my God, oh yes, but of course. So, um, and I would pair that with, uh, but also, and this I've never said, but uh, Ben O'Cree's uh, The Famished Road. Oh, you, 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 such, oh my. Book ho. <laughs> uh, oh my days. Now, I've never mentioned this 
before. And I was always aware how Ben O'Cree's uh, writing has influenced my writing in terms of the use of myth and how you just take a myth that was handed down to you from your ancestors and just do whatever you want to do with it, you know? I mean, I uh, the I know the abiku. The abiku has been done since Woleshoinka, and you, uh, you, Nigerians have been developing it, taking it up to the moment of um, the newest book. Oh, Freshwater. Freshwater. By Abu yes, that's the newest actually. But there's one before her. Stay with me. Oh yes. Now that goes goes the scientific way, and 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 and, and introduce, introduces us to the abiku as the child with sicker cells. Cause stay with me, you know. Stay with this an emotional roller coaster. I was like, what? I know, I know. But but I'm so invested into the this abiku thing. I I, I just read the famished road over and over, and I kept on thinking, how did he do it? How did he? do this book because on one hand you have this child that has double vision he's both a proper human child but he's also spirit and you're going to see through both eyes through both visions and he's not going to help you you don't work it out i live it <laughs> you know i live in this body with this vision you can work it out but at the same time you're seeing uh, the ideas about immigration from one world into another and how the people who host us and uh, you know, and then you also see how uh, nations that were being born in the fifties, you know, that young nations being born in Africa were arriving into the world and the established nations like the US and, and uh, Britain and German were so nasty to this new young nation. And on top of that, he is using satire and you're like, guy, you're loading it up. Allow me to take in just one little bit, enjoy it. You know, you know, when you eat something and all the flavors hit you and you're like, no, 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 no. Tank, tank, hold it back so that I can enjoy them one by one. That's how the famished road hit me. And I kept on thinking if I could do that, if I could do that with my book. So I... I coupled that with the rasp, uh, the Bohemian rasp Rhapsody <laughs> by Queen. Ah, do you want me to start going on with Queen because we won't stop? You know. Anyway, Queen. Did you know that Queen was born in East Africa? Queen, as in the Queen, the band, like Fred Mercury. Okay. He was born in Zanzibar's sister. <gasps> oh, yes. Now, how does a, an Indian boy born in Zanzibar travel from Africa? He goes to India to study in a boarding school. He's moved from there to England. And he becomes this kind of writer, this kind of musician. Because uh, that uh, his music is just so out there on its own. Uh, the Bohemian Rhapsody has this element of uh, the hallucinatory that you find in 
the famished road, you know, the, the, the worlds that are not stable, they're moving, they are real, but they're not real. They're there and they're not there. And in a way with Chintu, you find that world in Mrs. Book where the story is told um, through dream. And, and I, I, for me, there was there's that thread from uh, Queen's uh, Bohemian Rhapsody to Chintu, to uh, Ben O'Cree's uh, The Famished Road. Is this just fantasy? Caught in a landslide? No escape from reality. Open your eyes. Look up to the skies and see. How do you move between different writing styles? So the first time I read Chintu, I remember where I was. It was at a time when I had, I just had this thing of not, of not DNFing books. So DNF is do not finish. So any book I pick up to read, I have to finish it. But I don't just have to finish it. I have to finish it in one sitting. That was just my thing. It was some sort of madness, but we are cured somewhat. <laughs> the look on your face. <laughs> I remember I, there was a book that at that time I was reading and the book wasn't really connecting. So I extracted myself from home and I took myself to a place. It wasn't connected in that place. So I carried myself from that place to another location. And I read out loud because I was like this, not Chintu, but this book had to sink into my brain so I can get into the story. That's how committed I was to finishing a book I started. So I had this, I just had this uh, habit and discipline of reading a book cover to cover, one sitting, da da da, you're done. And then Chintu happened. And Chintu just like, you thought you were a reader. You thought you could decide, determine how to read books. You thought you could dictate to characters about how you could receive them. Calm, sit down, sit down. You haven't seen anything yet. Let me educate you, young somebody. I think I got through about a quarter way through and the book told me stop reading literally stop put it down I posted on my Insta story that this book is dictating to me how I should read it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I should I I, I I couldn't help but acquiesce it took me three weeks to read Chintu not because it is difficult no 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 because it requires that one is fully absorbed into the world. I think that Chintu is a, it's one of those meals. Um, the best thing I can use to describe it is Jamaican rum cake or the Christmas rum cake, right? Yes, yes. You eat it at Christmas and it's like, oh, but you can't eat too much of it because it is very decadent. Yes. But aside from the decadence of that of the dish it takes a year to make jamaican rum cake oh. because they leave it to ferment over time you're adding yes. ingredients as a year so the longer the cake takes to make the richer and more decadent it is that's how i wrote, I wrote chintu that is exact i swear to you that's the way i wrote chintu i just could not rush it I swear, you know, I, I, I've told people, I first wrote the first part in, 19, in 2003. 
and finished it and left it, went back to it in 2005, wrote another, but yes, I just could not rush that book. And I'm glad to hear that because sometimes it takes you 10 years to write a book. You finish it, you hand it out, and somebody two days later rings you, I finished, <laughs> when is the next? And you're like, <laughs> I'm so, so glad to hear that it halted you and said, hang on a minute, easy, easy tiger, slow down. Yeah. So I, for people who, for listeners of the podcast who have been listening closely, I have been asking one question obsessively because I'm fascinated by this notion of characters taking over a writer and dictating how the character is written. And more specifically, when I talked with Aisha Harunata, she went into a lot of detail about it. It just made sense to me now that readers can be taken over by books that they're reading. It is all about being quiet yeah. and being still. And Aisha Harunata, she used the term meditation. She said it is like meditating. And meditating is about being still, yeah, being yeah. quiet, yeah, yeah. Um, retreating to the internal part of yourself and being sensitive to your instincts and what your instinct and your spirit is saying to you. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So you talked about how with Chintu, you first started in twenty in 2003, then it came back to it in 2005. How did the time lapse affect the next setting of the story? Um, uh, then I would move on to another chapter, another oh. character. Yeah. So I would write a book. So each character had a novel almost, you know, so I would write their story and then I would move on to the next character. So in, actually in the beginning, it was going to be the same Chintu who died, who returns and dies and returns and dies. Yeah, but in the end it's thought, okay, a reincarnation is really not a very um, Ugandan uh, belief. It's a very more of a biblical thing and so, or it's also in Asia. So um, I, 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 I left that out. But uh, for me, I wrote the first book and it ended. And then I wrote the second book. So those shifts, I didn't have problems making those shifts. And in a way, I hear those shifts in the Bohemian rough. So it, it, just, it just moves from one part and you're like, Whoa, and the temple moves, and then the language changes. And 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 I thought, okay, this is how readers feel when they're shifting through the books in you know a, 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 or the sections in Jinto. I see a little silhouette of a man. Scaramouche, scaramouche, will you do the bandango? Thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening me. Galileo! I'm just a poor boy, nobody loves me. He's just a poor boy from a poor family, sparing his life from this monstrosity. Easy come, easy go, will you let me go? Bismillah, no, we will not let you go. Let him go! Bismillah, we will not let you go. Let him go! I think that there is something powerful about reading intentionally. And with your work, you can't rush your work. Having read The First Woman, having read Chintu and having read Man Manchester Happened, your work demands 
to be engaged with wholly, consciously, and intentionally. But I find that with Chintu, there was a theme that stuck out to me, the theme of mental health and how I felt that when reading Chintu, and this is what I was like, my brain is about to explode by what you are doing with this book, which we're going to come to later. I ask you for a book, a folklore, or a story that inspired you to write Chintu, paired with a song that captures how you felt when Chintu was finally completed. Oh my days, oh my days. <laughs> that was the simplest, that was the easiest, the easiest for me to answer, because um, uh, the 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 folk tale of actually it's a myth that inspired Chintu was um Chintu Nenambi. That is so easy. It's the Ugandan or the Ganda originary tale that is creationist. This is where we come from. This is the first man who is Chintu, and this is the first woman who is Nambi. So uh, that's the um the 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 myth that um uh, inspired it and the song <gasps> the song is so obvious uh that was the Miriam Makeba's tonight the lion sleeps tonight have you listened to that song oh, yeah. you know um I I listened to it again yesterday oh and I got these goosebumps you know all, all over my skin <laughs> a lullaby in parts it's just lulling you to sleep but in parts it's like your mother putting you back on on her back and is rocking you you know to, to quieten you if you've been crying that is a, a song that takes me back in my mother's arms i swear to you i don't understand a word but I understand every word at the same time because I, I and I do not need anybody to ever tell me the words or explain anything that she says because for me she does I understand I am Ugandan she's South African but I do understand it's also story time telling you know so as uh, you know when you call people the, the traditional storytelling that's how you would call them. It, it just does it. At one point I thought, you don't need to explain why that song answers this question. Because the song does it. Not necessarily in, in understanding the lyrics, but just listen to it. And it will tell you why it connects with um, the myth um, and it connects with how I felt when Chintu was completed. So speaking of understanding the untranslated. Yes. 
your works are unapologetically Ugandan. Yes. Unapologetic. You, having listened to several interviews that you've done and watched several interviews that you've done, the phrase Uganglish keeps turning <laughs> up. <laughs> but while Uganglish keeps turning up, I think that um, uh, which language is represented predominantly in your works? It's it's mainly Luganda. Luganda is the language spe- spoken by um, the Ganda. So I'm Ganda, uh, and the the English we speak is Uglish. Uglish. I'm like Uganglish. This is me. Like I did my research Uganglish, and it's like, nah, fam, you didn't. It's Uglish. <laughs> but yeah. So um, with Chintu and with the first with um, the first woman, more specifically. Luganda features a lot. The way you use language, I remember saying that Chintu is a Ugandan novel through and through. You don't translate. You give context clues to the reader to understand what is being said. Yes. But also letting them know that you are privy to this world. And I think for me, Thinking about it now, I realize how you use language as a device to root the reader in the time and the place that you have set in your novel. Yes. We know that the room given to writers of African descent, more specifically, continental writers of African descent writing an explicit African story we know that the linguistic room given to them is shifting a little bit, shifting towards a more accommodating, but not as accommodating as it should be. Therefore, I imagine that you would have encountered some resistance to your deliberate choice of rooting the reader in Buganda in your books, right? Yes. Yeah. What sort of resistance did you encounter and how did we go from that sort of resistance to what we see on the page? First of all, I should say that we are not given any room, Sarah. Mm. No, we claw it, kicking and screaming. Yeah, you grab it. No one gives you that room to start playing around with your languages. Yeah, so we have, we are just taking it back slowly and slowly, you know, otherwise the world would rather we write in a particular way or a particular English. Now, I was lucky that when Chintu was edited, it was edited by Africans, you know, uh, that was Ella Wakasama. Yes, Bay of all Bays, Bay of all Bizzle, busy, bizarre. <laughs> I know, I know. And it was Vimbai Shire. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh my goodness. She also worked on Leila Bulela's um, Bird Summons as well. Oh, she, she works. Um, because after she's worked on your book, we tend to tell people, go to Vimbai. <laughs> go to Vimbai. She does it. And, uh, and I think also Bile Kahora. Only person who was Western who edited the book was Kate Wallace, who she was the final proofreader, I think. But otherwise, Ella had done 
Ella had done the heavy shifting and then moved it on to Vimbai. Uh, they, they, they were just so glad to indulge me. <laughs> Once in a while they would say, okay, I'm thinking about my British readers here. Would they understand this? And normally we looked at, uh, if a, a reader in Nigeria would understand me and a reader in South Africa would understand me, everyone else would. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> it's like Nigeria, South Africa, and two very vastly different countries, yeah, vastly different histories. Absolutely. We're done. Everybody else can fall in line. Um, and so when that book came out, it was untouchable because it had Ella at the bottom of it, because she's a big name in terms of editing. So when it went to the US, they would not touch it. What do you mean by untouchable? Because untouchable to me evokes, to use a very strong phrase, it evokes this thing of a pariah, something you don't want oh, yeah. to touch. Yeah. Uh, there's that. But yeah, when you that. say Ella, untouchable, it's like, because Ella is heavyweight. Ella yeah. is a real G. Ella is yeah. a Iroko tree that stands very no, tall. No, absolutely. And let me tell you, there was an um, an editor in Britain. What, that was, was it Canon Gate? It was one of the big publishers. Who said who wrote the who read the book and said, I dare not touch it. I dare not change a word. And yet no cut moves, real G's making big moves. I know. And and they were they wanted to edit, they wanted to change things, but he said, I dare not. Those are the words she used. I dare not touch it. So when it traveled to the US, because it had this name. But also, it was such a complete world. You touched it, you spoiled it. So they did not edit it. And so because it was my first book, I was accepted. Okay, this is, this is who she is. We're just going to just deal with that. And of course, everywhere I went and talked about it, it was accepted. Now, when it came to my second book, I could not have Ella, of course, because, you know, but I had Vimbai. So I, I would uh, send my, and I would tell my publishers that I'm going to send my book to an African editor to tell me, you've gone a little too far, Jennifer, here, you know, and pull because, <laughs> yeah, yeah, sometimes they pull me back and they're like, mm, Jennifer, no, 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 a place. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and then Ella, uh, rather, uh, Vimbai would say, if they push you, say no, because she is both, uh, she's Zimbabwean, but she's British, and she has that double vision, and she's a Zimbabwean who is also Bantu, so she has an, an insight into my culture, okay, uh, nothing that I write surprises her. She just said, oh God, God, Zimbabwe is just like this, you know. There are even parts where she said, if they push you on this, yeah, you can say yes. If they push you on this, no. And then I move it to my publisher. Um, it, the first woman was edited a bit, but it was changing chapters and changing the chapter to that and, uh, you know, and moving the one before. Um, but uh, otherwise, with language and everything else, um, I was pretty adamant. But um, what I was lucky with is that my 
editor did a lot of research in English. Your editor with One World Press. Yeah, British white. <laughs> she did a lot of research in Uganda and a lot of in, in Uganda, Ugandan and, and English. So she ha she ha because she has edited two books of mine now. She's built a, a very large dictionary. Nice. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But still, they they push. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like I, I, I'm gonna push if I get over with it, you know. So the the a, a, because remember the editor is thinking about book sales, mm -hmm. and their book sales are here mm -hmm. in Britain. So the and audience that they're marketing towards is different from the audience you're writing for. Absolutely. That's the conflict between me and my editors. I am thinking of a Ugandan or an African girl that I was when I was 15. And they're thinking of a middle-class uh, wife. <laughs> Do you know, it reminds me of a talk that Marlon James gave. It was uh -huh. at The Guardian. He gave a talk at The Guardian where he said something along the line of that, according to publishers, their, their primary audience is white, middle-class, suburban women. Yes. So if your work does not cater to the interests and lens of white, suburban, middle-class women, then there is no audience for your work. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So if you look at Chintu, that opening was a struggle for middle-class white women. You know, oh my God, the violence. I was like, yeah, you're gonna have that. It's the whole prologue was problematic for them. And, 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 and I kept on saying, look, if you want to travel to a strange culture, do not ask that culture to accommodate itself to what is familiar to you. Mm. Just pack your bags and go. Mm. You know, but otherwise, if you want to go to a strange culture and find chips and chips and fish, fish and, and chips. chips. <laughs> <laughs> the shade. I'm going to eat my talkie. I'm sorry. Mm. Yeah, so um uh, but, and 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 I think they they are beginning to to change because we are saying look your world came without making itself familiar to us in africa and we read you and we understood you you will mm. and you can and they do spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine with the weather warming up it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I classify myself first as a reader. That's just, yeah. you know, that's it. I read. And yeah. I read actively. I can't read passively. I just can't. Yeah. And because I, I have this theory, it may not even be a theory, it could just be common sense, that Africans in the diaspora, we read literature by African writers differently from Africans on the continent mm-hmm. because we have different experiences with self and other there's a different mirror placed in front of us when we are reading reflections of self by someone who is also a reflection of ourselves albeit they might be from a different country or a different culture but there is some sort of universality that binds different African experiences together and so I'm extremely critical of some of the depictions in text not by our writers but I, I like to shift that blame to the publishing because I'm like this work was not created in isolation mm-hmm. but I'm now to me Chinto was like like I said oh my goodness wow so decadent so gorgeous I'm singing opera because it is so good you know how they say it is not over until the fat lady sings right I know that oh, is, yeah. you know that is um fat phobic but I'm like yes it is perfect yes <laughs> But imagine, imagine how the pure effrontery, how insulted I was when I saw that Chintu had been published in America. And then someone took it upon themselves to write an introduction to Chintu. I was ready to fight. <laughs> Do you know, um, so when... When the uh, publication came, the, that uh, I was told they are going to have an introduction, and I don't know why I did not click. I don't know. Uh, it, it's only, and I'm telling you, it's only sinking in recently. You know, because because recently I was asked to speak to translators in German in Germany and talk to them why we should not translate Africa. Oh. By translating is cultural translation. Why, what do you why mean, we... sorry to interrupt you, what do you mean by not translating Africa? This is where you use a glossary. This is where you explain your culture. So it's cultural translation. Mm. So they were asking me to talk about why we should not. So I wrote about it and but it's it's and I gave the paper and and then afterwards, after talking about how I refuse to have a glossary, why I refuse to explain Luganda words and whatever, whatever, it's only recently that I thought, no, Jennifer, you allowed an introduction. Mm, which is different, which is like a whole different explanation compared yeah. to glossary. Yeah, and and I just I was so focused on the idea of glossary. I did not realize that by having that introduction, 
I stood behind a white man. Mm. Oh. Walked, yeah, I walked into America behind a white man and he was the acceptable face. And he was saying, she's all right. You will understand her. She, she is good. I, I loved her. So you will understand her. And then I stepped out, stepped out of behind his, his back. And then I was, yeah, that's me. Trust me. So um, it's just sinking in right now. And it's sinking in in most painful mm. way. Because a lot of people were saying it, and because I was not on social media, so it was, I didn't know so much what went on. But I kept on saying, well, I allowed it. Mm. Um, so um, uh, so that he doesn't take all um, the whatever. But now for someone who had been rejected, who had fought so hard not to explain myself, and to stand behind a white middle-class man and hiding behind him so that they see him first and say, okay, he, she's okay if he says, I thought that is so bad, Jennifer. So uh, I'm going to go back to my essay, which I haven't published and include that part and say how I was unable to see the different facets that this handholding of Western readers, that this um, glossing. It's almost like enforced interlocutors. It is like yeah. they don't trust their reader. As a reader, I'm offended because I feel like you don't trust me. You don't trust me to be intelligent enough to understand. Because we talked about context clues. Oh, yeah. I mean, reading 19th century literature is very different from reading 21st century literature because the language is different. There are some words that are used in those texts that do not translate. Shakespeare really does not translate to 21st century, the language. No, no, no. but we read it and we passed and we enjoyed it, you know? Uh, but even then, think about your sister, your brother, your cousin in Africa, thinking about winter as a metaphor. Yo. Spring as a metaphor. Do you know, we, mm. we twist ourselves in those shapes of understanding, and we do, and we love it. But why are we spoiling the Western reader? Coddling. The culture yeah. of being coddled and coddling yeah. and all that. Absolutely. So I love the words you're using, patronizing the reader. So now I am going to write to my publisher to say, do not publish it again. Oh, but hello. I, yeah, so I'm <laughs> going to do it. And I'm glad you've asked that question. So, but it's taken me a very, and I don't know why, but it was that moment as I talked about how I refused to be. Mm you know, translated and what translation, I, I mean, it, I wrote a really, really good essay and give them a, the historicity mm. of how we started to be translated, the, coming from the idea of Africa being illogical, being a dark continent, being 
being in Africa being outside of comprehension. Yes, and I think also being undecipherable. There are so many metaphors used yeah. to say that you can't decipher it. The dark yeah, continent, absolutely. corruption, yeah. X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z. We can't oh, make absolutely. sense of it. So we have to explain it and explain it and explain it all the time. And after putting it out there, how offensive it was, I just then I realized what happened to my book, you know, and I thought, how dumb are you? And and you're not the first person to talk to me about it. There were so many people who did. And I, I would say, yeah, yeah, because I used to teach books, Western books that had introductions by Western people, you know, so um let's say dickens we're used to the classics we're used to especially if you're in the academic space you're used to works having introduction yeah Yeah. there were um, introductions so i felt that that introduction was doing the same thing as those introductions but no yeah personally and i hope you don't mind my saying this that one is of the opinion you know when you're like you're trying to push the edge you're like okay well, yeah third person you know <laughs> one feels that you're being a bit hard on yourself i say so because when we started talking we've talked uh, we've covered a lot of topics but one of the topics we covered was your journey to getting published we haven't spoken to that explicitly mm-hmm. but chintu even though it took you so many years to write chintu Chintu came to life through Kenya yes. by winning the Kwani manuscript. Yes. Where a lot of writers in the diaspora, the traditional route of publishing is you shop your book to Western-based publishers because we know that I feel and I believe that there is an intellectual colonization within the publishing landscape. Oh, God. We haven't talked about that. We talk about we talk about administrative colonization. We talk about settler colonization. But when are we going to talk about intellectual colonization of the of the product of the African mind? Oh God! If we start that, we won't finish. So we're not gonna. We're just gonna touch that. Yeah. <laughs> we're gonna touch that. Where we have been conditioned to reach to the West to get our works published because they own the means of production. They own the means of distribution. So production, distribution, and publication is well within their domain. We talked about the audience you're writing for versus the audience of work is being marketed to. Because the owner of the means of production, the means of distribution are based outside and they're not the people you're writing for, they therefore determine where and how and who get your work therefore your battle is multiplied on so very many different ways so in my mind I imagine that and not meaning to diminish Kwani's amazing work I can only imagine the journey that she would have been on on this publishing journey I I use journey twice which which I shouldn't do but you know what I mean you know the road you had been on for many years for like close to two decades writing Chintu agonizing over the characters the writing the editing the drafting then submissions what I assume to be rejections a lot picking yourself back up again and get ready to push forward and then Kwani publishes the book yes I get to see you at Africa Africa Rights Festival yes and I get to fall in love with Chinto and like yes and then ah the book is getting published in America 
what? America has got a right to this book. Oh my goodness. And then a whole new battle begins with America. You've expended your last energy getting acquired by an American publisher. And then, oh yeah, come. Auntie, please, let's give introduction. It's like, oh, okay, well, you know, why not? So for yeah. me, I think that while you're reflecting on this, I would say that replication of past behaviors by the system, which when you pause and analyze it, it's not really surprising because kind of leopard really changes spot. While leopard has spots, the spots take on many different forms. So for me, if I may be so bold, I think that, yes, while you have come to this realization, I think that the culpability mustn't rest on you. The way way I hear you talk about it, the way to me, it seems like you're being very hard on yourself. It seems, and pardon me for my strong phrase, it seems quite self-flagellating. Like, I can't believe I let this man do that. And while to me, it seems like you think you were introduced to the American market at the back of this white man. No, no, I read it differently. I saw him riding on your coattails. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> no, that's how I saw it because the work is so spectacular and the work is beyond reproach. Oh, that thank you. He, it is of credit to him and I assume he's an academic. Yeah. So it's of credit to him to add this to his CV in the way you and I know, having navigated the academic space, the way you and I know that white academics, they latch onto African genius yeah, yeah. to further their careers. So oh, that's yeah. what I saw there. I didn't see you being complicit. I saw academics doing what they do. But, and I oh, saw yeah. it as being more, more beneficial to his career to have his name tied to this book that is unimpeachable. That's what I was looking for. Chinto is unimpeachable in the oh. canon that no. it was a, better, a great benefit for him to do that. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. That's very kind of you. Thank you. When you talked about Ella editing your book and how she midwifed, she and Zimbai, how they, they were the midwife that brought this gem to life. And part of me was like, oh my goodness. How favored are you to have people like that? Oh, 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 do you know something? I've always known it. I've always known how lucky I am. I've never taken it for granted. You know, I, I, because I, it took me a long time to publish because I read a lot of books coming out of Africa at the time while I was waiting. Okay, and I was now getting to know the industry. I could read a book and I knew, okay, this is what they did with this book. I could read another book and know they took this book on because they had bought someone else's big book. Okay, and this one was sold on like a tag on and they don't pay much attention to editing it they don't collaborate very well with the pub with the writer but the and also because it's published by a big big huge publisher the writer is given a lot of money let's say thirty thousand, but they don't care whether you make money you're triggering me right now i do a weekly session on instagram called literary ancestry so where i i marry the past writings by African writers with new works and contemporary writing. So the classics and the contemporary talk to each other. Yeah. With like, so I led for Mayinka um, said in like, you bring an ice cream to the sun. 
the thing that upsets me the most are how many books by African writers that are out of print. New books, mm-hmm. newly published books, just one run, yeah. one print run. I want to talk about the importance of having midwife mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as a writer who is writing an intimate story and not intimate in the eros sense of the word, but mm-hmm. intimate in the sense that you are talking about the unknown and you're opening up the unknown to the uninformed in a way that respects the sanctity of what you're writing, but also is communicable to the uninformed who is reading it. Jimbai Sharif and the indomitable Ella Wakatama. Mm-hmm. These women, they plugged into your vision. Yes. They plugged into your motivation. It takes a village to raise a child, to nurture the child, and to prepare the child to self-actualize before releasing the child onto the world. Yes. Talk us through your meeting with both women. Talk us through how you got to meet them, your sort of communication with them. And also, if you can, shed a light or advise potential writers who are listening to this episode who are like, oh my goodness, I want to have some of that favor (laughs) that you had. Um. I didn't meet Ella until uh, the Kwani Manuscript Project, but I had read about her. Uh, I had been following her um, because uh, at first I thought she was Ugandan. We have that name. For us, it's Wakatama, but for them, it's Wakatama. (laughs) I know, I know. So when I saw that name, I thought, oh, here's a, a Ugandan person. And I Googled her and she does. Look, Ugandan. (laughs) 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 So I was was getting really excited. So I started to Wikipedia. (laughs) And then I find out that she's in Zimbabwe. And I thought, um, how did you end up in Zimbabwe? (laughs) You're supposed to be Ugandan. So I, I win the manuscript project prize. And I was really, really excited. And then the real prize arrived. They sent me an email and said, you'll be edited by Ella. I swear to you, I was in a Tesco. You know how your phone pings and the email and you're like, let me have a look. And it was there. What, I honestly, I was, yeah! My husband asked me, have you won a second award? Yeah, <laughs> the award. Yeah, yeah, and he said, how much? <laughs> Uncountable. <laughs> and he said, this is bigger than the money. You have no idea. You have no idea. And he had no idea. I said, you know, this is a writerly thing. You won't understand, but I've been given the top most editor in Britain, that's what I say, the top most editor in Britain to edit my book, but she's African. When I added, but she's African, he started to click. Oh God, I remember screaming and thought this is way, 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 way bigger than the award. So I, I, we met in, uh, in, in 
uh, we met in Kenya and she was wonderful to me. And then we started editing and she was wonderful, but she was also very, um, she, she did not really massage or, or say, oh, Jennifer, I'm sorry, I'm going to butcher this part. She did not. Basically, she took out a machete and just whack one part. You know, I remember I'd spent 10 years with that book. I knew every bit of it. And every bit of it had been nursed, nurtured. And, you know, it came back, Chintu came back, she had edited it and she had got rid of a part and said, I'm sorry, Jennifer, but this brings the the level. Your book is so good. This brings the level down. I, I swear. So I read it. I read through and I put it away. Because I had been teaching creative writing, I was ready. I was prepared for that because I do that to students. But it's still. It is one thing to think you're ready and another thing to actually be ready. So, and then I thought, okay, I put it away for one week. I read it again. I hadn't replied. I hadn't said thank you. I read it again. By then I started to realize that because in the beginning I was like, no way. Hell no. <laughs> That's what I was writing on the script. <laughs> to her comments. Now I can say it. Because <laughs> it's so many years later. Now I started to correct. I said, maybe. Okay. I'll consider. I swear I wrote on the manuscript. But I didn't change anything. And then I gave it another week. And I changed. I read through. And then I realized, oh, okay. Makes sense. So she started to make sense after three weeks. By then she had written to say, Jennifer, are you not talking to me? And I wrote back and said, no, 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 no. It's nothing like that. In fact, when we met, uh, when the book came out, she said, Jennifer didn't talk to me for two weeks. I said, no, of course not. That is not true. It's true. But I am so, so lucky that uh, I trusted her. I was, I was in awe of her. I knew she knew better than I did. So um, she prepared me for those moments. Because, you know, when you're, you, you, you're being beaten mm. and it's your mom, that sense that you know you, you trust her hands. You're being chastised in love. Yeah, because this is love. You know, yeah. So it, it, that is all that helped me. And I learned so much from her. It, it was incredible. I met Vimbai much later. And, and, and Vimbai would do, would Google Kampala and write back and say, you say this is the Gothic cathedral? It's not. It's, <laughs> yeah, I know. Vimbai went to Kampala in terms of landscape. Every part that I wrote about, she would Google it. This, I'm telling you, those two sisters, they go, they go, they go all the way. They, they did. And so this is why for me, I keep going back to Vimbai because uh, Ella is too busy. But I keep going back to Vimbai because by now she has a relationship with my writing anyway. She has a relationship with my language, with my structure with my way of thinking. 
Okay, so uh, th th that's the way I met those two ladies and I'm so lucky. And I, I keep saying to writers that writing is not cheap. It's a very expensive job. Save money and send your book to be edited by a proper editor. I do, I swear to you, I, I spent a lot of money editing the short stories and editing uh, The First Woman on my own before I handed it over to the West because I know they would, they would keep the integrity, but also they would see certain things that are missing that the Western reader would, writer, pub, uh, editor would not. They would question, I mean, I can be blind, I can be willful, I can be forgetful, they pick on those things. Ella, Ella would say to me, we don't speak like that. And I'm like, you're Shona. I said, no, we don't speak like that. <laughs> Do you know? So they pick up on, on certain things. That I like, are... <laughs> sorry, I like how at the beginning you thought Ella Wakatama was Ugandan. It turns out she's Zimbabwean. And now she's telling you, a Ugandan, that fan, no, you don't talk like that. <laughs> I, I'll give you an example. One time I wrote the phrase, the cover cars, that English cover car. And then because I was making them plural, I ad added S. And she said, no, 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 no. We cannot have, how do you write plural cover car? I said, Ba, Kavaka. And she said, let's go with that. Do, do, do you see what I'm talking about? Do you think this is like a speakeasy now? <laughs> <laughs> a Western editor would do that. To her, but she would not be aware. And 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 I keep on, so she didn't edit um, the, the first woman. I kept on thinking she would be reading this and say, huh, look, <laughs> huh, who did this? <laughs> I, and, I'm t and I'm telling you, if Africa ever gets money, we need to put Ella uh, and, and, and Vimbai, and we just say, this is an African editing place. And she teaches the, yes. edit, the African editors so that all, all books that are coming from Africa and making their way to the West should go through that building. It should go through the, that building where Ella is the queen. And every time she ticks off a book, then it goes to the publisher wherever they go. Because she is fantastic. There is a phrase you used, integrity, maintaining the integrity of the work. Yes. Vimbai is, to me, it sounds like she paid very good attention to the fact checking. My stress with writings by Africans being published in the West you know. is inconsistency and how you're reading certain books and you're like, that expression is abnormal and abnormal in the sense of the word that that is not normal. And I feel cheated as a reader. I feel really cheated, not cheated in the sense of betraying culture that you're documenting, but cheated for the time I've invested in this story and cheated because you are breaking my suspension of disbelief. You are, you have, you have pierced 
my immersion into this world and you have just extracted me and now I have to do the work of just once again researching myself processing my thoughts yeah, and yeah, yeah and just doing this whole psychological somersault of trying to understand why is this okay da, 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 da. is it their fault do I forgive them why do I have to skip hop and jump all the time well that's that's just me <laughs> that's just no. me and my you know yeah but, but you know what this is the problem. So the death of Kwani. Yes. Yeah. So because for me, when Chintu came out, I thought, okay, the short stories would go through Kwani. Kwani edits. Ella edits. <laughs> Ella. <laughs> so I was sitting there when, yeah, I just channel through Kwani and then they sell to the world. Do you, can you imagine how beautiful that would have been? But Kwani died. We're used to literary prizes giving money. And then also there's a conversation that the reason why a lot of continental and diaspora African writers, the reason why they look towards prizes based in the West is because those prizes accelerate their career. So yes. once you have been shortlisted for Man Booker, oh, doors open for you, even longlisted. Yes. I'm now, I know. Women's Prize, all of that, doors open and all of that, right? But until you mentioned Kwani's connection with you and Ella, which was the real prize. Yes. For you. Yeah. I hadn't thought of alternative ways of rewarding writers for their work. And how we also need to, we need to rethink what we call decoloniality or decolonization oh, yeah. of the arts. How yeah. everything for us is reduced, not us, but you know, popular discourse is reduced to money, right? Yes. They got X amount of money, but no, there is something more intangible that you get with these prizes. Oh, yeah. and, and I think it was so forward thinking of Kwani to do that. Oh God, the, the whole thing was such genius. First of all, the idea of a manuscript project, rather than giving African prizes, you know, because for an African, uh, being published is a prize in its own, you know. So what if those people have been published, that is a prize. Let's look for the manuscript. So for me, th that was fantastic. The, just the idea of a manuscript project. Because otherwise my book would have taken a long time to get off the computer, okay? So they take it, but they on top of uh, shouting out aloud about me, they give me that editor, they give me uh, uh, some money, which I used to buy my computer, which I've only recently replaced. Seven years, I've heard it. Wow. Uh, I know, and, and uh, I put it back in all its wrappings, I'm going to ship it back to you guys. Are you kidding me? Chain to first woman and uh, Manchester happened have slept on that computer for seven years. Of, of course, I'm keeping it. There's no way. It's kept me company. But um, the idea that we could re rethink the whole idea of awards and we say, okay, for an award, we've given you an editor, okay. For an award, we're going to give you a manuscript appraiser. Mm. You know, you know the, that that kind of thing. It would help a lot 
rather than just focusing on books that have come out and making them. But again, there's so much to say about stuff. I know, like but it's just new ways of thinking, new yes. ways of, of doing things. Oh, that, yes. Which is why I think this medium of speaking to writers and opening up conversation is so powerful because you get you to know. hear things you would not, not normally have known. No, absolutely. But also it would be another way of pulling back school, just pulling back our canon, being in control, taking a little bit more control. So if my book gets um, appraised by Vimbai, then from Vimbai it goes to an agent. Mm. And, and, and also the other thing is, if we talk about these people, the Vimbais of this world, this, they can then make their way into the publishing houses. Mm. Do you know? And, and I've been waiting that if I make it big enough and I, I am big enough, I can then say, oh, okay, thank you. I'm, I'm selling you my book, but I would like it to be edited by this person. Do you see? Mm-hmm. That's how you pull a sister. Mm. You know? And, and so that we know that, okay, the house has an African editor. And so when we talk amongst ourselves, you know, when we go to Ake, you know, yeah, sell it to this publishing house. They have an African editor there. Oh my goodness. By the way, I'm just like, uh, this would be multiple episodes and I'm here for it. The same way Chike Frankie Adosian's episode was multiple. Yeah. Oh, Chike is such a beauty. He is such a beauty when he starts talking. You just melt. I love him. Um, oh, just purity of soul. I'm still on Chinto because Chinto was our first introduction to your work. For me, the episode conversations is about pulling back the curtains and read listeners taking something away from it and getting to know you. Yeah, uh, but I'm also happy because I've been talking about these books over and over and over and this conversation, this conversation we're having means a lot to me. It does. So, oh God, yeah. Chinto opened the gateway for you in the publishing triangle, continental Africa, Europe in the UK, and the North in America. And for me, this triangle also represents the rights as well. You know, how certain publishers have the rights to Africa, um, rights to the Americas and rights to Europe. We talked about how Chinto was published in America and Americans felt an introduction to Mm -hmm. the book was necessary. But to me, that is not the only anomaly I've noticed with Americans' treatment of your work. Yes. Every book you have published outside of Chinto has been published in America under a different title. Yes. I say that because the next question I'm going to ask you falls within that category. So we're going to discuss this in the next question. Speaking of in America and America's feeling this need to publish your subsequent works as a chain to under a different title, I asked you to pick a song that articulates your feelings towards readers' reception of Chintu and your subsequent works and you picked that it's chris beats african time <laughs> but i couldn't believe when that song fell it, it just dropped on my phone i turned it on and i was like yes this is it this is it 
and it's it's I know I, you know sometimes I turn on my computer and turn on the music and then I go down there and I start dancing like I dance myself dizzy <laughs> I swear, the first time I listened to this song I turn I I would rewind play it again and just dance play it again and just dance I remember Kwame Nkrumah. I remember Fela Kuti. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nandi Azikiwe. Are you ready? And it's not just the fact that it takes you through the African landscape, you know, Nairobi, Tanzania, Ghana, Nigeria, you know, but it's also the institutions. I think it's, it, it you know, you, you, you hear Mandela and you're like, yeah, I'm home. And then if fella caught it and yeah, 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 tick, tick. And then, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know I thought it was crazy you know but I, it's it just took me I think the moment I was like ha <laughs> Brenda Fassi I was like yes <laughs> it's an homage it's an homage to predecessors but it, it's also the way it makes you feel like there's something about African that is so us. Mm. And I don't know how to put that in words, but it's just that I know that you feel it and you're Nigerian. Mm -hmm. And I know that I'm going to meet somebody from Togo and they feel it, you know? And I know I'm going to meet someone from Congo and they will feel it. I am telling you, it, it, it is that thing. It has no word, but it is that thing that this song brought out in me. And, and the idea that it's African time, man. <laughs> African time. <laughs> I like how it is reclaiming and redefining the term African time, which you and I know has a different <laughs> I know I hadn't realized oh uh when I saw the title I was like oh my goodness yes speaking of time in the linear sense of the word yeah the song title speaks also to your journey of getting Sheen to publish I indeed the linear time it took you to write it the linear time it took you to get published, but also the unlinear time that it yeah. took for the book to make its mark, to get to the right hand. You have a vision. It takes a while. You're like, when is it going to happen? When is it going to happen? When is it going to happen? Yeah, 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 and it yeah, goes yeah. through all these triumphs, all these tribulations, all these challenges. And then African time comes and said, here I am. Bang, 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 bang. You are waiting for me. I know. 
Take it. Take it. (laughs) But here's the thing. I am an author. You are a reviewer. And he is a musician. And we are in sync. It's it's just so... And this is what makes your podcast fantastic. you allow me to articulate my feelings uh, about my journey through music and how I know that the minute you play this song, all the people who've read my book, it will make sense to them. (laughs) We started our conversation talking about understanding, making sense. You attributed Imagine, or you dedicated Imagine by John Lennon to Batty, and you said, he will understand. Yeah. We talked about the linguistic landscape of Chintu. Oh, yeah. Context clues. They will understand. And now the song, <laughs> African <laughs> Time, in relation to readers' reception of your work. And you're like, oh, yeah. When they hear this, they will understand. <laughs> and it's like, I feel, I feel that while I'm celebrating the unapologetic in Chintu, in Manchester happened, in uh, the first woman sort of that Ugandan culture unapologetically being centered. I was like, yeah, this is intentional. And I feel like you're telling me now, fam, this is who I am. You can <laughs> theorize away, you can intellectualize away, but I'm just showing you who I am, fam. You will understand, kind of thing. <laughs> I know, I know. But then look, at, look how comfortable you are. I know. You know? Because we understand each other, we do. I think there's something that because the West and the world has told us that they don't understand us, and and then we understand ourselves so well. I think we just so make sense, don't we? Yeah, it's that thing that let's say I meet a Nigerian on the street, and he says. Yeah, we are like that. Just two minutes together, we're waiting for something. Then something happens and we will say, yeah, we are like that. Yeah. And we carry on, <laughs> you know? Yeah, or you it's, just give each other a knowing look. You don't even have to speak, just like, yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's that. It's that that uh, African time does for me. Oh, so how does it speak then to, how does it articulate your feelings towards readers' reception of Chintu and also your published works? I think it it does in a way that I I am a recipient of this music, okay? And I'm telling you, I have no idea what the the song is saying in the first four or five lines because I don't know which language it is. Do you know? But my goodness, it makes sense. It was the same with Miriam Makeba's The Lion Sleeps Tonight, you know. I don't have to get all the lyrics, okay? But I get it right from the beginning. I got what he was saying. And that is what happened to my book. Mm. But that's what happens to my books. That um, they, they have other languages. And and uh, they ha- no, they have another language, but they they are traveling around Africa very comfortably. Wherever they get, they just sit down and make themselves native. Mm-hmm. Do you know, 
the way this song did to me, okay? I have never even bothered to find out where the the, the singer comes from. I suspect it's Nigerian. Tennis Nigerian, but yeah. For me, uh, uh, he was he mentioned Mandela, Kwame Nkrumah, Felakuti, Lakedube, Lakedube. I'm like, yeah. I'm in the middle there, right in the middle between um, uh, Mandela and Lake Dube and Brenda Fassi and Nkrumah and Fulakuti, right in the middle there, that's me. And, and the way I received that song is the way readers receive my books. And, 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 and this song just took me there. You know, I usually, in every episode of the podcast, in the same way I asked you, I usually ask guests to recommend books by writers. So if I'm talking about a particular book, I would say, okay, recommend a book to readers who wish Mm -hmm. to read something similar to your work. No Mm -hmm. less than four guests have referenced Team 2. Yeah, the very first episode of Books and Rhymes, the podcast that was released was with Namwali Sarpel, whose book, The Old Rift, came out. And this was in front of a live audience, mind you. Guess who was in the front row? front and center so I was like okay so you know a book you recommend to readers da, 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 da. and she was like oh cheese and I was like yes <laughs> and, and so when you said was like she plays a huge part in the book I was like oh it makes sense that she was there to hear the just talk about how amazing the book was. And so Nadipo Maninka also, I believe, mentioned Chintu. Novuyo mentioned Chintu. And obviously, Mutoni Muriri, the one who um, welled up when I went, I, the metaphorical question of if Chintu, the last copy disappeared, she was like, oh, I'm going to cry. She referenced Chintu. And her copy was so beloved that this actually funny anecdote. So she was like, she was reading the book while cooking and the book fell into the soup. She licked it off. <laughs> I continue, I continue oh my God. You can have your book and eat it. <laughs> and she's, do you know what? She's Kenyan. She's reading a book in Kenya. Where Chintu? Yeah. Where Chintu yeah. was birthed. Yeah. Yeah, I that relationship with Kenya because the Kenyans loved it before Ugandans. It, it Kenyans had read it before it traveled to Uganda. Has it been published in Uganda, and how have Ugandans responded to it? Oh, um, they are still discovering it. Every year, I still get someone saying, "Oh my God, oh my God, I cannot believe this is a Ugandan book you wrote about my family. How did you know where we live?" And I'm like, "Yeah, of course." <laughs> Would you like your book to be published in Uganda? Have you had conversations about getting it published in Uganda? What, in your opinion, is stopping it from being published in Uganda if it hasn't been published already? No, it hasn't been published in Uganda because. Um, the uh, English rights are all bought by the the British and Commonwealth, but it's the translation into Luganda that I'm more interested in. You know, I I would like, I wish that it would be translated while I'm still around. Mm. And I would like 
to see what it would look like. Because the thing is, you know how our, our languages are. There's the language we speak and there's the language that is written. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I can write Luganda and I can read Luganda, but that the Luganda I can write is the Luganda that goes to write a letter to my mother or text. But mm -hmm. the Luganda that is written for literature is very different. Like um, formal Luganda, like yeah, you know. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And also, especially if you're writing a historical aspect of it, they would use a very different kind of language to reflect that historical element. So yes, I would like the book to be published in, uh, translated into Luganda. But Ugandans have been very surprising in their reception of it. Like I, I haven't had any negative recep um, I, reception of it, you know. Um, yes, there was surprise that uh, there was homosexuality before the arrival of uh, Europe. Oh, that 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 cracked me up. One thing I'm particularly conscious of is writing the other well, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. not sensationalizing the other. Yes. Yes. Oh. The beauty, the beauty of your prose. In, in a way, you, for the reader who doesn't do work, you make your writing so sweet and so hypnotic to the reader that they don't realise that they're doing work whilst reading it. Yeah, but isn't that the beauty? The idea, once you realise that readers are not passive, that they work along, that readers are sometimes more creative than you were, that you need to give them space to create along, you know, with you. Then you, you, you realize you don't have to work very hard and then they don't realize they're doing most of <laughs> the, the imagination, you know? Um, I, I, for me, this is where, like, I, I would leave spaces to discover. Mm. there's the part you're reading but there's also the discovering that you're doing that that when you read um kusi that's a name you realize kusi is not just kusi mm. and even though she's she's got just a tiny part you know she has links to the past but also there's an unwritten girl there you know that you have to create yourself that you have to discover yourself because I can't put it there for you. And, and, and often it's those characters that people discover for themselves that they love most. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Tune in next week for the concluding part of our conversation. I guarantee you it is an intellectual, orgasmic discussion where Jennifer Nasubuga Makumbi takes us into greater conversation about her work, her novel, The First Woman, published in the United States as A Girl is a Body of Water, her collection of short story, Manchester Happened, published in the United States as Let's Tell This Story Properly. We talk about why the United States publishers seem to want to publish her books under different titles, her recommendation of books by Ugandan writers for 
readers who wish to indulge in the beauty of Ugandan writers' minds. So join us then. Also, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Books and Rhymes. Follow at Books and Rhymes on Twitter and Instagram to stay abreast of conversations on classic and contemporary works by African writers. Until then, please stay safe, take care and live your best, beautiful, exquisite and restful lives. All the very best. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.